Welcome to Stuff You Should Know, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Josh Clark. There's the beautiful and illustrious Charles W. Chuck Bryant right there. Mm -hmm. And there's the equally awesome Jerry Jerome Rowland right here to my right. About to chow down on some stuff for lunch. You were just cussing her out before we hit record. What are you talking about? (laughs) And this is Stuff You Should Know. That's right. The Disordered Edition. uh, Yeah, this was a bit of a mess about Damascus Steel. This is my favorite American gladiator. Oh, that's a good one, Chuck. <laughs> Pretty good, huh? Yeah, that was great. That's all I could think about. Was that off the cuff? Uh-huh. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> it's off the cuff in that I thought about it five minutes before we came in here. That's and cool. It that still that counts. That's good. It wasn't a real character, right? This is a joke. No, but it sounds like it. Oh, it does. Okay. I wanted to make sure we're on the same page. I also wanted to take your joke and mash it into pieces. Sure. Good job. Thank you. So um, we're talking today about Damascus Steel, which I was peripherally aware of before this. But I didn't know Mm -hmm. at all by any stretch. And what it turns out that apparently a lot of people who write about Damascus Steel don't know (laughs) is that there was a metallurgical mystery that developed over time that was only solved in the 90s. That other people, yes, exactly. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Yeah. That other people have, you know, tried and maybe somewhat contributed to, and now finally, thanks to the um, the efforts of these metallurgists who really got involved and tried to figure this out, They're this dedicated. mystery has been solved. But it's possible yeah. that had they really not taken up this this gauntlet and tried to figure out what was Damascus steel, we might never have known because. Even if you rewind all the way back 2,000 years ago when Damascus Steel was started in production, mm-hmm. they had no idea what Damascus Steel was either. No, it was kind of an accidental find. Yeah. Uh, if you look up Damascus Steel on a picture viewer yep. on the internet, mm-hmm. you will probably say, oh, it's like those cool swords or knives or guns that have that cool, like, wavy, uh, watery etching on them. Yeah. Like, Game of Thrones even talks about Damascus steel. Right. And all or, of- or if you're an interior designer and you're like, I've never seen a sword, it's like the <laughs> Damask material that sometimes people sure. use for window treatments. That yeah. pattern is the same. Yeah, the, and that's spelled D-A-M-A-S-K. Yes, but I, it is based on that. Yes, yeah, exactly. Yeah, okay. Um, and it is gorgeous stuff. Like if you see a – if you're a knife collector or whatever and you collect like a new knife that says Damascus steel or mm-hmm. a gun that has a cool pattern, that is what we're going to refer to as quote, unquote, Damascus steel. Right. It is not the original. It's not the OG Damascus steel. It is something that people have learned to do these days to look like Damascus steel. And that itself, the technique they used from what I saw was actually based on – a. Pretty ancient technique yeah. as well, but it's still not Damascus steel. Nope. And the reason why anybody would care about Damascus steel is not just the way it looked, right? Which I, I think that if Damascus steel didn't have that very characteristic watery look mm-hmm. to the to the steel, um, I don't think people would have taken up that quest to recreate it. No. I think that's really part of its allure you know, that drew the metallurgists in at least. Well, yeah. it's. Um, I mean, we should go ahead and say the allure is a fewfold. It is— Well, I was about to. Super cool looking. Yeah. Can't deny it. I won't. But if it's super cool and, like, your sword breaks on some guy's uh, suit of armor— He's not going to be like, that was a pretty cool sword. I feel bad for you. Let's <laughs> right. just call it even. No, you're dead meat. Mm-hmm. So uh, it is super, super strong. 
and super cool looking. Right. And very flexible for a metal. Yep. It's got all these cool properties kind of all wrapped up into one. And it's it's like this super, super steel. Super steel. Mm-hmm. That's exactly what it was. And it was produced in the ancient world. We here in the modern world don't like to think of people in the ancient world having better steel than we have. Well, they didn't really. I mean, supposedly modern steel is better than even OG Damascus steel. I think supposedly is the operative word. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, but there was a period in time from at least, I think the first mention in the West that we are aware of comes from like the 3rd or 4th century BCE. Yeah. Where the Greeks, I think Alexander the Great is basically like, this stuff is awesome. Yeah. Um, and so it was well known by that time, you know, more than 2,000 years ago for being the steel you wanted to use if you were creating a weapon. Yeah. And, you know, let's go back in time a bit. If you're a sword maker a couple of thousand years ago, right? you've got your work cut out for you because you don't really know what you're doing yet. Like, you don't know what kind of, of metal that you're getting. Right. And if you get some iron, iron's going to have other properties in there. Mm-hmm. But you just kind of have what you have. Right. And the R&D process, if you imagine how long it takes to forge a sword, then you go out there and swing it and it breaks. Man. You're like, all right, let me try again. <laughs> With maybe let me try a different uh, type of ore or a different type of iron. And swords are long and they're thin. And it's just the very nature of making a, a broadsword is really difficult to make it super strong and sharp mm-hmm. and all the things that you – like not so heavy that you can't even carry it. Right. So they were sort of uh, – I mean, they were brilliant in one sense that they were figuring this stuff out on the fly. But um, they were also just sort of victims of whatever materials they had available. Right. So that's what makes Damascus steel so interesting to me is mm. that it was a fluke of nature. Right. And it happened to be mined. As we'll see, it was a fluke of nature. It happened to be mined in this one area in South India. Um, and it just so happens that this particular – iron ore that was being mined in that area made some of the finest steel the world's ever seen. Yeah, so they called it Wootz, W-O-O-T-Z, steel. And like you said, it was mined near uh, Hyderabad, India, Mm -hmm. into these 2.3 to 2.5 kilogram cakes or ingots. About the size of a hockey puck, I saw. Yeah, so they would ship these things out, and they were mining, and they didn't know, like, hey, we've got this secret super metal Mm -hmm. That, you know, no one is going to believe what we're sending them. Right. They were just mining stuff. And they sent a lot of this to Damascus in Syria, and they made them into swords. And most people think that's probably where the name comes from, even though some people do say the root word uh, damas in Arabic is watered. Oh, I didn't know that. So that could have been, like, one of the things. But my money is on the fact that they sent them to Damascus, and that's where they made the steel. it makes sense. Yeah. I mean, I guess it depends on how old the city of Damascus is, but I get the impression it's pretty old. It's not young. But watery steel makes a lot of sense, too, for that particular type of steel. Maybe it was both. Either way, Mm -hmm. it was was well-known outside of the Middle East and and, uh, West Asia and India um, as, like, the go-to steel. But at the time, like you were saying, they don't seem to have understood – that what they had on their hands was just this incredibly high-grade yeah. steel, just perfect steel for making weapons. I get the impression that the metalsmiths tended to take all the credit for it, 
where in retrospect, you or I could have taken a lump of Woot steel mm-hmm. and just hammered it with our elbows and it would have turned into like a world-class <laughs> sword, you know? Yeah, or at least something you could punch somebody with. <laughs> right. <laughs> but the, the, the metalsmiths over the years um, kind of circled the wagons and pretended like they had some great secret or technique and maybe even thought that they did. Mm-hmm. But really, as we'll see, the secret ingredients were all in the steel that was being mined from India. Yeah, but also in the technique, which we'll get to as well. Right. But um, but I think that was happenstance more than yeah than understood. I think so. Okay. Well, you know that what they should have done to see if they had the good stuff. What they should have uh, dabbed their pinky in it, touched it to their tongue. <laughs> nice. <laughs> Rub their gums with it. Yeah, that's how you know you got the Very good stuff. Nice. That's true. Uh, all right. So where were we? We were in the the Crusaders, right? The Crusaders get a hold of these things. Oh right, right. And they kind of did what they wanted to do. Yeah, we should do an episode on the Crusades. No. <laughs> okay. Fair enough. I feel like we've talked about this before. Deja vu. Mm-hmm. Uh, so this is the beginning of the 11th century. They got these swords off the battlefield, and there was, there's a lot of lore that surrounds this Damascus steel. Like you could cut a, a silk scarf that was falling through the air. What about a feather? Could you cut a feather? Cut that feather right in half. What about a hair? You could split that hair right in two, my friend. Long ways? <laughs> Oh, I thought you just meant... No, I'm talking Bugs Bunny style. (laughs) Yeah, you could split that hair. Okay. Um, But all this was lore. It was really good stuff nonetheless. But there are a lot of like, you know, sort of ancient stories about the properties, like the magical properties of this steel. Right, right. I I saw one thing, though. I don't think it has anything to do with magic, but I saw it from a metallurgy website. Mm. Uh, Somebody took a bunch of notes off, I guess, some lecture, and I'm not entirely certain what the lecture was, but it was pretty intense. But they said that this would cost about the equivalent of a car today, one of these swords, one of these weapons. So they were highly prized. Wow. So you can imagine the crusaders coming back to Europe and saying, hey, Smithy, um, make me something like this. Right. And from from what I understand, what the smiths came up with, because they were hamstrung by the iron that they, they had to work with. Yeah. They came up with a different technique for creating – a type of Damascus steel that isn't true Damascus steel, right. but became so widespread and basically all Europe had to offer that it became a, what's known as a type of Damascus steel, pattern-welded Damascus steel. Right. And that is, you know, it's still strong and it has that nice-looking, you know, watery uh, etching or whatever. Right. But it, it kept them from getting their heads cut off, probably. It, it was good enough. It, yeah. I would say. But it's off-market Damascus steel. It's the yeah. Knights of the Round Table <laughs> of Damascus steel. You know what I mean? Sure, because it wasn't that Woots. you, you got to have that Woots. Right. But they didn't know that at the time. No. So because they were able to form that watery pattern from taking um, two different kinds of steel, that's what pattern-welded Damascus steel is made from, mm-hmm. use at least two different kinds, apparently— uh, ultimately for the color contrast. Right. Because that creates that watery pattern. It's mm-hmm. the two kinds of steel hammered into one another that creates the pattern in in that type, mm-hmm. which makes it not really true Damascus steel. If you have true Damascus steel, that pattern goes all the way through the, that Damascus steel blade. Like you can, no, really? You, yes, you can wear it down and wear it down until you you make it through the other side, and that water pattern's all the way through. See, that is pretty cool. Like it's a part of the the ore itself at that point. Absolutely, that is what differentiates true Damascus steel from anything else. 
That's right. And boy, I can't wait to talk about that stuff at the end, how they figured this out. I know. I feel like we've been paying this out <laughs> tantalizingly. All right. Well, we'll take a break here and we'll talk about some of the efforts over the years to try and figure out what this uh, what this deal was right after this. Okay, Chuck, this is going so well, by the way. Uh, should we tell people that we've had some technical difficulties? Might as well. They're probably like, what is wrong with these Yeah, two and we're kind of giggly, and uh, we're not drunk, but— the, Jerry didn't bring champagne today. The rare technical difficulties have caused us to have to redo some stuff. We're just not used to that. We're not. Usually everything runs like a Swiss watch mm-hmm. around here. Yep. It's and not today Jerry's it's fault, like a though. Swiss Army knife with the corkscrew out going right up our butts. That's more <laughs> what it's like. We got to say, though, it's not Jerry's fault. No. Okay. We would never blame Jerry for something like that. Somebody, it's like the three little pigs. Somebody's been sleeping in our bed, you know? That's what I blame. Somebody got in our studio and, and touched some stuff. Yes. Well, they're going to be very surprised by the padlock that they encounter next <laughs> yeah, time. Exactly. And you're like, and there's only one key. <laughs> That's right. And I swallowed it. Oh, no. Gonna have to get it out with the Swiss Army corkscrew. All right. So from the beginning, they started to try and recreate this stuff. And, you know, like I said, that was during the eleventh century. And then it it just sort of that it seems like it just continued on throughout the ages of people trying to recreate this. Yes, but at the same time, they were still able to keep making Damascus yeah. steel from India. The quote-unquote Damascus steel. Up until, depending on, no, no, the real stuff. Oh, oh, yeah, because they had this ingot. Yes, yeah. up until, um, and I think India was still producing it, up until, depending right. on who you ask, either the 18th century or the 19th century. Right, good point. And then all of a sudden— Damascus steel just stops, yeah. and all you have is the pattern welded. You cannot find true Damascus steel anymore. And it was um, quite perplexing to a lot of people. It was, and they were making uh, they were making guns, gun barrels with the stuff. Yeah, which like that's I, how long it continued. Yeah, and that's, I think that's supposedly what supplanted Damascus steel in a lot of people's mind because some people— said they didn't even realize that there was a mystery to Damascus steel. They just thought it had been supplanted by advances in steelmaking. So you didn't need Damascus steel anymore. And another explanation I saw was that Damascus steel was actually terrible for um, rifling in the gun barrel Mm -hmm. because that watery pattern would actually hold on to the powder residue. Oh, interesting. And your gun would be likelier to backfire. Mm. But it it was actually very useful in that you could make a gun barrel, which is long and, and narrow, right. from this Damascus steel because that's this special kind of steel that stays strong sure. even when you're elongating it. Right. And, uh, I mean, let's be honest, the people wielding those guns were like, this is pretty boss. It is. But it's cool looking. <laughs> I also think, you know, if I'm on the battlefield, I want the guy who's just – who only cares about the function of his gun, not the guy sure. who's admiring what his gun looks like. You know what I mean? Like when you're walking through the old gun market, you want the guy that's like, she's ugly, but she shoots straight. That's right. <laughs> yes, the, right. the guy from Jaws. <laughs> yeah, is that Quint? Yeah. Uh, so this one guy, uh, there was a Russian metallurgist named P. Uh, Anasov, and he thought that he had it all figured out. They called it, uh, he called it Bulat, and he even said, 
in no uncertain terms. Our warriors will soon be armed with bulat blades. Our agricultural laborers will till the soil with bulat plowshares. Bulat will supersede all steel. And uh, he didn't. It didn't work. He didn't. He no. wasn't able to recreate it. No, and he actually was part of this initial wave of scientists. I think as metallurgy was really developing, because we said before the ancients had. It was all just intuition and technique. Yeah, and they knew what you know they were doing, but they also couldn't be like, oh, it's because of this that's happening on a microscopic level. Right. Of course, they didn't have microscopes and no. No, about chemistry. You can thank Anton van Leeuwenhoek for that. That's right. <laughs> um, but the, as metallurgy started to develop, as science itself started to develop as a field, that was a, a sub-discipline that really kind of came around. And one of the things they tried to figure out was what was the deal with Damascus Steel. It was one of the first things they really applied their mind to. And um, Michael Faraday, actually, who is the guy yeah. who crosses over from this episode to the other one today. He was the son of a blacksmith, very famous scientist, uh, the father of electricity. Um, he tried his hand at figuring out what Damascus steel was. And what everybody kind of had a suspicion was is that this steel had more carbon than the, your average steel, but there had to be some secret ingredient. And so it kind of became trendy in the first half of the 19th century among metallurgists and just scientists in general yeah. to figure out what that secret third ingredient was. Yeah, and there were a lot of attempts, I think, in that um – I think Faraday thought it might have been silica and aluminum mm -hmm. or aluminum to him. Oh, yeah. Uh, in the 1820s, uh, Jean-Robert Brent uh, at the Paris Mint <laughs> did a six-week uh, study in the trial, and I think he did like 300 experiments. He was trying to reproduce this Wootz right. unsuccessfully. I think he tried uh, platinum, gold, silver, copper. Uh, tin, zinc, lead, bismuth, manganese, he was close there, uranium, arsenic, and boron. Mm -hmm. And then that Russian even tried diamond. Yes. It's like, let me throw some diamond in there and see what that does. Why not at this point? Like, I think somebody melted on a kitchen sink. <laughs> and the, the whole time they were, like, still hearing about this lore. Like, I think by this point they didn't. You know, they knew if it came out – like these stories that came out of the Middle Ages certainly were not true. But sure. there were stories about uh, about cooling it in dragon's blood. Oh, yeah. I love these. About quenching it in dragon's blood yeah. like you know, when you cool it down yep. or red medicine or green medicine is what they called it. There was also one I saw where you're supposed to quench it in the urine of a goat that's been fed nothing but ferns for three days. Is that real? Or yeah, it's real. <laughs> I mean, it's not real, obviously, but no. That but is I a, can't tell if you're making that up. No, no, okay. no. That's a. I wish I were that clever. <laughs> that was pretty good. That sounded like a, a you joke. Thanks. Uh, oh, a you joke. Mm -mm. No. Okay. That's sheep. <laughs> right. Um, let me see. <laughs> it had to have been heated until it glowed like the rising sun in the desert, and then cooled to royal purple and plunge into the body of a muscular slave. Right. Uh, to transfer the strength of that person into the sword. So, obviously, in the 1800s, they know all of this is hogwash. Right. But over the thousands of years that Damascus steel had been produced, like, right. these are the, the lower that kind of developed around it, right? Yeah. I mean, and they were – they wanted to keep this stuff a secret. That's one of the reasons, aside from running out of that original Wootz. Right. Uh, another factor was the fact that they didn't, you know, spread this around. You wanted to – 
if you if you knew something like this, you wanted to keep it in the, in the family, I think. Well, that's what a lot of people thought. So so you have a whole like the whole world is just confused about Damascus steel and and will be and was until this episode comes out where we finally explain <laughs> the deal. But there were different camps running around like we said, some people were aware that Damascus steel just wasn't around anymore. Uh, and that something had happened. Mm-hmm. Other people just thought it was supplanted by increasingly better technology. Right. Um, so what other people thought, and the most interesting idea to me was that the smiths mm-hmm. who created these these incredible blades, like you said, kept it in the family, and then just some generation failed to tell the next generation the secret was lost forever. Right. And that is really like up the Damascus steel alley. That it's shrouded in mystery and secrecy and magic and dragon's blood and fern-eating goats that pee all over the place, right. you know? Yeah. And that's that. So it's really interesting, but no one knew exactly what was going on. They just knew that nobody was making true cast Damascus Damascus steel anymore. That's right. Should we take another break? <laughs> all right. This third act, you guys just get ready. It's gonna <laughs> knock your socks off right after this. So everyone's trying to make this stuff. Everyone's trying to recreate it. The answer is uh, it's kind of right under their nose, but it's not mm-hmm. because it's not under their nose mm-hmm. because this stuff had been gone for a long time. It dried up. That Woots dried the W up yeah. <laughs> and, was, and was gone. Uh, and then I think it was – when was this? In the 1960s that a guy named C.S. Smith – and he was a metallurgist, the chief metallurgist oh, for yeah. the Manhattan Project. Mm-hmm. He wrote a paper about Damascus steel. And again, this is the 1960s and, and said this stuff was lost to history. Mm-hmm. And a bunch of people tried over the years to recreate it. He kind of like laid down the gauntlet like this is a this is a metallurgical mystery, guys. Yeah, and it seemed like it sort of kicked off a renewed interest here yeah. in the mid-20th century. It definitely did. Yeah. It became kind of like the, I don't want to say holy grail, because it's just so cliche, but it is pretty accurate among metallurgists to yeah. figure out Damascus steel and to recreate it, too. I think that's fair. So there was um, there were many attempts. Like we said, th- there had been previously many attempts back in the uh, 19th century. But um, I think in the 70s, a pair of um, Stanford researchers really kind of thought they had cracked this. And, and as I was saying at the outset of this episode— they weren't entirely wrong. They just didn't right. complete the thought. Mm-hmm. They thought they had, but they they didn't. They figured out one very important part, and they actually did it by accident. Um, they were looking up ways to make metal that is much more shapeable but still equally strong. Because you had said these early smiths were, you know, they knew some metals were strong, some metals were um, hard, some mm-hmm. metals would break easily, but you could fold them into shapes or whatever. They, these guys were looking for a kind of metal that you that was extremely strong but also shapeable, and they came up with this super plastic metal. And somebody said, 
I think this is kind of similar to Damascus Steel. Yeah, their names were Dr. Jeffrey Wadsworth and Dr. Oleg Sherby. The Sherbs. Yeah, that's a good movie name. Dr. Oleg Sherby. Uh, so they're yeah, in trying to find the super plastic metal, they found something that I think someone at one of their presentations, uh, a swordsman, stood up in the movie version oh, from the crowd, <laughs> yeah, and said, "Hey, this is uh, this is very much like Damascus steel, which was you know was very rich in carbon." Uh-huh. And they went, "What carbon?" <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Or did they already know it was carbon? Surely this was not the reveal, right? They knew that this high carbon um, content was making their steel super plastic. And I think the swordsman, Zorro, we'll call him, (laughs) said, Sherbs, um, I think that Damascus steel also was high in carbon. And I think maybe the super plastic thing is what you guys have stumbled on here is the secret to Damascus steel. Yeah. So let's go write a paper based on this rando stranger's thoughts. Yeah. And when, because, I mean, his name is Zorro. He carved a Z in my chest. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Um, When we say a lot of carbon... Uh, between 1 and 2, about 1.5%, which doesn't sound like much, but no. regular steel has a fraction of 1% yeah. of carbon. Yeah. So it's a lot for uh, a sword. Yeah, I think anything over 0. 0.7 or point no, 0.78%, rounded up 0.8%, is considered ultra-high carbon steel. Okay. So really not much, like you said, but, but as you add this carbon, it does start to give – the metal, different properties. It um, and in particular with uh, with Damascus steel, it turns out that, that Wootz, that that Wootz alloy was a hyperutectoid ferrocarbon alloy. <laughs> which means that I saw that word. It had so much carbon in it mm-hmm. that there is um, it changes the eutectic point. The eutectic point is the temperature where all this, all the different materials that make up the alloys just separate. They're yeah. different materials. They're melted apart. They're no longer together. This has so much carbon in it that the melting point is actually after the eutectic point. So this stuff can kind of fall apart either after the melting point or before the melting point, I can't remember, but it has to do with that. Right, and um, and we'll get to the other secret property, but there was also technique involved in that uh, to create this Damascus steel, you know, to forge a sword. Compared to other ores, you were you were hammering at a relatively lower temperature. Yeah, than you would normally. That was the other thing that um, the Sherbs and Wadsworth. We're saying was it has to do with this, but but on a, again a microscopic metallurgical level, what they came upon was we think that the true secret. Well, who's they? You got to shout them out. Sherbs. Well, no, it was, I'm, no, uh, I'm still on them. Oh, okay, I'm Sorry. still on them. So Sherbs and Wadsworth said we think that there's it has to do with these carbides that are forming. Right, right. And so carbides are a um, it's like iron and carbon mixed together, and in particular, what this forms is called cementite. Mm-hmm. And these cementites are forming as spheres, and as you hammer in heat, woots, these iron car- iron iron carbide spheres align themselves yeah. just so with the shards of iron to create this really strong but also really resilient type of steel. Yeah, and this is something that you're looking at under a microscope. Right. Uh, and that is one of the problems and one of the reasons that it was so hard to figure this out over the years is that in order to do that, 
you have to take one of these blades and cut it into sections right. and put it under a microscope. And these were like rare collectibles. So Yeah, people weren't coming off of them very easily. Not much. I mean, there were a few museums donated some pieces. And then there was this guy, uh, Henri Moser, who was a collector. I think he had 2,000 uh, damask blades. And he donated two daggers and four swords in the 1920s. That was nice of him. To a guy named uh, uh, Z-S-C-H-O-K-K-E. So I'm going to say Shok. Okay. Or Shoka. Uh-huh. Uh, and so that that helped, obviously. But it's even hard to get a hold of this stuff to, to cut it up and put it under a microscope. And that's problem one. But then even when you put it under a microscope, you're like, what? Okay, I, what am I, I looking kind at? of understand what I'm seeing. <laughs> yeah. But then how, did I, how do I recreate this? Yeah, exactly. And even more to the point, how did these ancient smiths 2,000 years ago create this? Luck. So they figured out, yes. So they figured out that the iron carbides are definitely a big part of it. And Wadsworth and uh, the Sherbs took a victory lap. Mm-hmm. But then C.S. Smith. 1981-ish, right? Yeah, something yeah. like that. But then C.S. Smith, the metallurgist from the Manhattan Project, who I get the impression he's kind of like this metallurgy god, <laughs> he's like, I don't think that's it, everybody. I don't think this is the true explanation. And so it, it remained un, unanswered for another decade or so. Right. And he checked in with the other metallurgy god on his right, mm-hmm. Mr. Bruce Dickinson. Sure. And he said, make it so. That's right. <laughs> uh, so then these other uh, dudes came along. Um, John D. Verhoeven uh, from the University of Iowa. Mm-hmm. And then a smithy from Florida named Al Pendre. And they spent, I think, like four or five years, again, like running all these trials, t- trying to figure out what this last – little secret sauce was. Yeah, because so this is what he was up against, if I just may interject real quick. He was saying, was it one of the components making up the slag? Was it something being extracted from the crucible walls, the little pot you melted in? Was it the type of iron used to make it? Was it the time or temperature used to heat the molten metal? Was it the cooling rate? Uh, he had all these questions. Yeah. He did not know what it was. He just knew that Wadsworth and um, the Sherbs had not answered it yet. Right. Every time you say Wadsworth and, I want to think of the, the Muppet Show guys. Was that their – no. It was, I don't think um, it was Wadsworth, but it was something like that, oh, right? man. It was – Berg uh, – not Bergdorf. Bergdorf and Goodman. <laughs> That's what <I> <laughs> It was uh, Macy's oh, and Gimbal. Yeah. <laughs> we'll figure it out. Oh goodness! Somebody's screaming at their I know. Earbuds I think right it was now. Walmart and Woolworths. That's it. <laughs> that was them. I know. Well, we don't look stuff up on the show. It's just a longstanding rule, generally, right? Yes. Because it's rude. It is. Because we're actually sitting in front of each other. Like for we're a talking. We're having a conversation. We're having a for conversation. Pete's sake. Uh, so, I mean, I feel like you should announce it since you're the one who kind of no. Really? You got this. All right. I just wanted to interject that one thing about, like, all the confounding factors that it could have possibly been and that this guy's applying science to this. All right. So what they found out was what happens on that level was something that's called a microsegregation, which is a chemical separation of alloy elements on very small scales mm-hmm. of low levels of carbide-forming elements. And they had a list of five things, uh, vanadium, our newest best friend, Molly B, yeah. was on the list. Yeah. It's so funny how, like, that's come up like three or four times now. I know. I never even knew it existed until like a month ago. Uh, chromium, uh, manganese, and niobium. And what they found out was the winner overall, ladies and gentlemen, mm-hmm. was vanadium. Yes, the chemical element V. With a little bit of manganese. They said that has something to do with it. Yeah. But mainly vanadium, I think as low as 40 parts per million yeah. is actually effective 
And uh, that was so close to vibranium. I was like, <laughs> I got really excited. Yeah. I was like, oh, man, is it vibranium? <laughs> of course, that's not real. No. What's uh, that from? Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, you're not into the Marvel, uh, the MCU, are you? N- no. Okay. What's it from? Vibranium is the fictional uh, alloy in uh, Wakanda. Oh, okay. For where the, they the make black... their weapons out of that? Yeah, and that's okay. what um, Cap uh, Captain America's shield is made from vibranium. Okay. That's why it's so tough. Gotcha. Did he get that from Wakanda? He got the vibranium from Wakanda. Oh, that's neat. Yeah. They share. <laughs> I like it. I, You know, I've noticed here or there um, in the Marvel Universe, sometimes it almost seems like there's like crossovers between <laughs> characters. Yeah, that's weird. That's a great example of it. Yeah. It's almost like they had it all plotted out. I see. <laughs> Uh, well, it's funny. Another Marvel um, shout that there's this company in Sweden making this new Damascus steel, and they give it all these like, you know, sort of Viking names. One is called Thor. One is called Loki. Mm-hmm. One and, is called Fern Eating Goat Pee. Right. <laughs> but they're just you know they're trying to to increase sales by naming it something super cool. Yeah, and they make fake um, Damascus steel. It's like stainless steel with the pattern blown onto it. Yeah. Basically, using powder. This is this is they figured out finally true Damascus steel, which is just absolutely wonderful. Yeah, and vi- it's vibranium. It's that little bit of uh, vi- now I can't remember. It's vanadium, right? Yeah, vanadium. Those are carbide forming um, elements. Right. So it is the carbides. Mm-hmm. You do have to start off with ultra high carbon steel, and apparently the ancient uh, Indian um, uh, uh, smiths created that alloy by putting a little bit of charcoal in there, maybe a little bit of wood in with the iron so it would absorb a lot of carbon from it. It just so happened that the iron ore that they were starting off with had some vanadium in it, and that is ultimately what created that amazing watermark pattern but also gave it its strength and survivability in battle. Yeah, and I'm hoping someone out there makes uh, Damascus steel daggers. And sends us one. Oh, that'd be neat. I want a Damascus steel dagger. Somebody, I can't remember who it was. Remember, they sent us knives. I still have my fillet knife. You the chef's knives? Yeah. Those are gorgeous. Amazing. Whoever yeah, sent I still that, have mine, Thank too. you again. I cannot remember your name. It was years ago. But yeah, it's many years ago. Uh, you got anything else? I got nothing else. And I'm still seeing that we're, we recorded this episode successfully. That's all that Eventually, matters. Eventually, yeah, it is. <laughs> Uh, well, if you want to know more about Damascus Steel, go to your local gas station. They probably have something that looks like it. It's probably not real. Probably not. But you can look at it and say, oh, that's what they're talking about. I got it. And since I said I got it, it's time for listener mail. All right, I'm going to call this, uh, this is the most recent email in my inbox. <laughs> hey, guys, I'm writing to tell you about numerical palindromes. Uh, you dismiss them as being quite unexceptional. Mm-hmm. And while I agree that alphabetic palindromes are much more complicated and difficult, I have to tell you I'm obsessed with palindromes on the odometer of my car. Okay, I can see how that could be fun. Looking up, recognizing a palindrome on your old uh, odometer. Yeah, I guess so. Sure. <laughs> uh, I actually shared two cars with my husband. Uh, and when I got in and saw that the odometer read 33934, I actually gasped. Today, I was able to resolve my stress uh, in that car, as you see. I would, is that a palindrome, though? 33934? Oh, 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 okay. Just, Does it involve subtraction? Because if so, that's not a palindrome. I, I think this person just missed the palindrome. 
because they share a car with their husband. Oh, gotcha. That makes sense. Uh, today, I was able to resolve my stress in that car, as you can see. <laughs> Once again, I particularly enjoy ones with eights and zeros or sixes in opposition to nines. Sure. Like 26092 or 85158. Yeah, there's something satisfying about seeing those numbers, I think. It's nice and round. Plus, nine is unlucky in Jap- Japan. Oh, it is? Yeah. Okay. Nine and four. Uh, if you can imagine rotating it around on its central number, there is always another cooler balanced number on the horizon, even if it isn't a perfect palindrome. I hope you ha- I, I hope I have elevated numerical palindromes a little bit for you. A little bit. Ciao for now. That is from Robin Van Gessel hmm. in Victoria, British Columbia, Canada, North America. Beautiful town. Planet Earth. Thanks a lot, Robin. Appreciate that. Really appreciate the chow as well. That was very nice. Nice ad. Good send-off. Super 80s throwback. Uh, and uh, if you want to get in touch with us like Robin did, you can send us an email too. Wrap it up, spank it on the bottom, and send it off to stuffpodcast at iheartradio.com. Stuff You Should Know is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts my iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app. Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.